You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Chris Bennett. Chris has spent 14 years in real estate spanning self-storage, residential investment, and on the brokerage side. Passiveinvesting.com, his responsibilities include sourcing self-storage deals, man, that's a tongue twister, and <laughs> leading due diligence. Today, we're going to talk to Chris about all things self-storage because this is a super interesting asset class that I'm still learning more about. So I'll stop there and just say with that, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Uh, it's so funny. Last night, I took my boys out to get some ice cream, actually, and bring them back home so we could watch a movie. Probably Salted Caramel over at Killwinds. If you guys have never heard of Killwinds, it's kind of a chain ice cream shop, but they have really good ice cream. If I go to the store and get it, I might get some sort of version of vanilla, actually. I like vanilla and then put some peanut butter on top of it. You're making me smile ear to ear right now because salted <laughs> caramel is like my new favorite jam right now. And I'm, yeah, I'm a long distance runner. And yeah. the goo that I'm addicted to right now is salted caramel. And it's yeah. beautiful. It's so good. So you mentioned peanut butter. Any other toppings? You know what? That's it, man. I just like the smuckers, like the natural peanut butter that you have to like sit there for 15 minutes and mix yeah. in it. You know, that, that kind of ridiculous peanut butter. I like that one because it's got some salty kick to it, I guess you'd say. That's my favorite. Put that on some vanilla ice cream and I'm good to go. Yeah, I can already see that we get along on the salted trend because <laughs> anything what... salted, I'm, I'm game for. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Uh, right now, looking for self-storage deals. So $10 million or more in growing markets in North and South Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, mostly the Southeast, Colorado, Arizona, near growing cities and suburbs. Gotcha. And then where did your real estate journey begin? Did you start in self-storage or was it somewhere else? No, not at all. So like you mentioned earlier on, 14 years ago, I started in residential. I didn't know anything about commercial whatsoever. So started in res residential 14 years ago, puts us right at the recession. So I got my license 2007. My first day on the job was August 20th. I still remember that day, 2007. And uh, we nobody knew what was about to happen, you know, the following year. So we all thought in my real estate classes, hey, we're going to make a bunch of money and it's, life is going to be great. And then boom, we were sucker punched in the gut. So that was a tough time, but that's how I got my start. Yeah. Were you on the brokerage side then or were you doing investments yeah. and raising funds and all that kind of stuff? No, no. I knew nothing about any of that stuff. So uh, I don't know if you want me to talk about that and the journey there. But um, when I started it was residential and I thought just go out and, you know, broker homes just like anybody else. Some people buy and sell single family homes. But coincidentally, the shop that I worked for, the real estate firm I worked for was a small local firm. And they had kind of an in, in a sense, to the foreclosure market just by accident. So we ended up doing a lot of business with asset managers and banks and whatnot, helping them kind of get rid of their inventory. So when I say that we're working in the foreclosure business, I mean like the grunt work. So I would literally go and evict people with the sheriff's deputy, change locks, do personal property, um, trash outs. I mean, all kinds of stuff. It was really a tough time. So, but yeah, that's how I got my start. Yikes. Were there problems? There was margin though. Do you, uh, do you remember what you were scooping up properties for at that, at that time? Oh, sure. If you could pay cash for them, that was the best way to do it, obviously, but 50,000 bucks downtown. Yeah. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. So downtown Concord, which is a really growing suburb of Charlotte. So for example, I have worked with an investor who coincidentally, he did commercial real estate brokerage, but he wanted to buy single family homes. He and I would do deals together. He bought 50,000, 75,000, whatever. He would put buy him cash and then refinance them after he put a tenant in him uh, later on. So 
he would always recycle his capital. But we did several deals together and then other investors too, who were looking for deals. But I'm anywhere around 50 to 75,000, which is like mind boggling to think of now. Those of you guys who know Charlotte, here's another example. There's a building in Uptown Charlotte called The Catalyst. We call up downtown Uptown. I don't know why. So that's why I said Uptown <laughs> Charlotte. Cool. Trendy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Trying to be cool down here. Anyway, uh, Uptown Charlotte called The Catalyst. If you got on the, maybe it was, let's call it the 10th or 15th floor and above, you could see into Panther Stadium. So it's kind of a cool view. You can't do that anymore because they built up buildings around it. But at the time you could. That building was going to be all condos. You go and tour it. You get a one-one. Uh, one bedroom, one bath condo, maybe let's call it, I don't know, six or 700 square feet, something like that. Not very big, nice views. You can get that for under $200,000 at that time. You can get almost a penthouse uh, in that building for under three. If you think about that for a quick second, market values have skyrocketed. If you'd have bought that, whoops, held on to it, you'd be sitting pretty. Yeah, yeah. really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's crazy you mentioned that because uh, during that time, I live in Nashville and right on Broadway, the, the, the main strip where all the honky tonk bars are, there was this abandoned three-story building that my friend and I were looking at, knew nothing about real estate at the time. We were just straight out of college and uh, they were selling it for $400,000. Brooks and Dunn, one of the country music stars down there, bought that bar, turned it into a three-story bar. And I bet that property is worth $20 million now. Oh I mean, man, yeah, if, yeah. If we would have had the foresight to think about what would come through that. Well, that's everybody back then, right? So if you bought anything, you'd probably end up doing well today. You just have to hold on to it long enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just incredible. Yep. So you went from uh, kicking, evicting folks out of their homes when the foreclosure- <laughs> Basically for- kicking them out, but yeah. <laughs> and, and to self-storage, how did you make that transition? Yeah. So what's the connection there? So mm. I started in residential, was doing the foreclosure stuff, didn't like that after a while and uh, decided to go back to school, actually really go to school. So I enrolled in community college and uh, transferred to UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm making a very long story short. So transferred to UNC Chapel Hill. I actually didn't like real estate because all that I saw was what I, what I had experienced. So I wanted to get away from that and go do some other stuff. Coincidentally, again, at Chapel Hill, the only job I could find in the summer, my first summer there was as an intern for a guy who was doing uh, apartment uh, investing. He was doing uh, private equity apartment investing. And I had no idea what those words even meant. He needed somebody to help him underwrite properties. And so I came on board and uh, he taught me what to do and how to do it. His name is Daniel Eller and he's still functioning. He's still going strong today. Eller Capital Partners, if you guys want to look him up right there in Chapel Hill, they have a lot of nice properties in that area, but he's the one who helped me get my start. I'd never seen that many zeros in a spreadsheet before because he was buying uh, at the time I was underwriting a 16 property apartment portfolio and uh, I can't remember what the purchase price was, but I was just like stunned, like looking at the screen, like, oh my gosh, like this is insane. And then I realized like what he was doing, he was raising capital from investors to buy these buildings, uh, these apartment complexes. And I was like, I didn't know you could do that. And so we kept talking and going. I worked for him for two summers in a row, basically. And uh, by my second summer, I was like, okay, this, I totally get this. All of the wheel, like everything's clicking basically, to make a long story short. And I'm like, man, this is a great opportunity. Worked for him for two summers in a row. They have a real estate private equity fund at the business school at UNC Chapel Hill. I got into the business school, applied to be on the fund, to be a fund manager, got into that. Uh, it's a lengthy process, got into that. And then we had, uh, at that point, we had friends and family money of the school to invest. So we had a real fund, real dollars. We would look at all kinds of deals, multifamily, hotels, uh, apartments, retail, industrial, all that kind of stuff. So I saw all the food groups there. And afterward, 
Graduating from that, I went on to work for a family shop, a family office in Raleigh. We were doing multifamily investing. I was the bird dog. My special title was director of acquisitions, but that just means go find deals. Yeah. So that's all I was doing was looking for multifamily deals. Uh, long story short, we ended up pivoting to self-storage and I was able to compare the underwriting of the two, the market, I mean, everything regarding the two asset classes. Nothing is wrong with multifamily, don't get me wrong. I just ended up liking self-storage. Um, and I was like, man, this is a great opportunity in this space and in the industry. So let's go ahead and focus there. And that's, that's where I felt my heart going. So that's what we did. Yeah, I know as we connected to, you mentioned there were three real reasons why you kind of like this space. I kind of want to go through all of those. What are the reasons why you like this space or why you preferred it over multifamily? Yeah, yeah. I think the number one reason would be consolidation. So if you look at any of the data out there, one a good resource would be the self-storage almanac. So one reason I like the asset class is because there is such a thing as the self-storage almanac. It's about, I don't know, 150 pages or something like that. And it's all the information you could ever want in the self-storage industry in one publication, which I don't know of any other asset class that has that information that way. But if you look in the uh, the almanac, they'll have pie charts that show, hey, 25-ish percent or so, something like that, or of storage facilities are owned by sophisticated investors or REITs. The remaining 70, let's call it 75% or so, are owned by what they would call mom and pops, who are people who own one or two facilities max. And so you have a tremendous opportunity for consolidation. Anybody in the multifamily space understands that, hey, you flip those. 75% of multifamily is owned by institutional, sophisticated investors who own more than one or two locations, and the rest are mom and pops. So there's a tremendous opportunity for consolidation, and it's been going on for years, and it's still an opportunity. So in the last, I'd say, five, six, seven, eight years. So there's still opportunity to uh, scoop up single assets and uh, bring them in put together a portfolio of properties. So that's one reason why. The other reason why is we survived storage. I say we, but at storage survived two recessions. So in 2008, 9, 10, after kind of the dust had settled, the actually SBA, the Small Business Administration, reflected back on all of the different types of businesses that existed. And they realized self-storage is actually very stable through the recession. Uh, and actually had returns and all this stuff. So they decided to go ahead and make a loan program tailored for self-storage. Um, and that just speaks to the stability of the asset class. During the pandemic, nobody knew what was going on. This is you know 2020 during the pandemic. Uh, everything had shut down. As, you, as most of us know, life came to a screeching halt. How did real estate do? Well, if you look at the data, self-storage occupancies actually went up starting, let's call it late summer, early fall, something like that. They held steady and kept going up, which is the opposite of the trend. Usually during the year from uh, spring to summer, occupancy rise and then occupancies rise and then they fall off going towards Christmas. And then it's like a cycle like that, just because people are moving in the summer. But occupancies went up, they stayed up. Rents went up, they stayed up and have remained up since that time. So we did really well coming out of the uh, pandemic when everything was shut down. So the resiliency of the asset class is number two. Number three, I, I kind of hinted at the SBA. I would say, I said something earlier on, uh, I forgot what it was exactly, but financing options. Uh, I, uh, I would recommend anybody who wants to buy a deal, let's say you want to just buy your own and hold it for a while, 
really take a hard look at the SBA as a loan option. I got great friends over at Live Oak Bank. They're one of the best SBA lenders out there. I don't get any referral fees for that. Just call them and talk to them. Tell them Chris sent you and they'll take care of you. So an SBA loan is a fantastic opportunity for uh, an owner, an investor who wants to get into the space. Now, there are some trade-offs with that. Uh, but the point is, is they're actually trying, the government is actually trying to help you buy a facility. It's like an FHA loan. Three and a half percent down, you know, they'll cover some of your closing costs, some stuff like that. They want people to buy houses and build up wealth. The SBA has a similar program for self-storage. It's 90% uh, loan to value. Uh, they will lend you some of the CapEx as well. So you can get a little bit higher than that if you need to. So 10% down, that's unheard of. So there's a lot of financing options. Plus banks, they know that storage did well during the last recession. Banks are willing to lend on storage now, even more so going forward. So I'd say those three things, consolidation, um, uh, the um, financing options, and then just the, I forget what, what the other one was that I said, but I went so long. But anyway, those are the, those are the reasons why I would, uh, I would jump into the space. The stability. Um, the stability. That's is, right. there a, <laughs> is there a specific loan inside the SBA? I know there's like 7B and all that. There's kind a 7A. Of 7A and a 506, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 7A and the 50. There's different nuances to each. So um, the five, I think it's the 506, has basically two loans put into one is long story short. And there's some nuance to that, et cetera. And then the 7A is kind of a more like a straight up loan that you would think yeah. of when you go to a, any typical lender. Again, the trade-off is the rate is a little bit higher and it's floating, meaning it's variable. It's not fixed, but that's okay. If you think about your cost of capital and the equity, and let's say it's seven or 8% or whatever, and the loan amount is, the loan rate is five and a half or something like that. That's okay because you're still paying a lower rate overall for the entire capital stack, right? Because you have a 90% loan to value uh, on that property. So it's still a great option. I know one of the reasons why it's such a stable asset classes is because if you think like Americans are consumers by nature, and there's probably a lot of people why you saw occupancy go up during the pandemic is because there's probably a lot of people that moved during the pandemic, whether they're moving out of coastal towns, whether they're moving out of big towns into rural areas and things like that, they'll just stuff it in a self-storage for a while. And all of a sudden people just continue to pay over and over and over again to stuff their, let's call it what it is, junk in, a, in, a, in an area where they don't even want it. Are there any other reasons why you think it's such a stable asset class or any other reasons why you see it's such a stable asset class? Yeah, I think the story that you just said. So usually people need storage because there's a change in their life, whether it's a death happened, a divorce happened, they're moving from one place to another job relocation, or they're buying a new house, something like that, or downsizing from the previous home. Sometimes people have, like it goes along with death, they have something happen where they can't get rid of the stuff because there's sentimental value behind it. So to them, it's valuable. To us, it's just you know, what is this garbage you guys have in here? Others, there's businesses that use it. We were touring a deal yesterday, actually, and the lady had her facility, her door open. And these were actually massive units. They had like 10 foot, um, they were 10 foot doors. They were really big doors. Uh, and she had the whole thing rolled up and she had a complete shelving system in there. So she was running a e-commerce business yeah. with stuff all over the shelves and Amazon, this and that, whatever. There's a mix of reasons why, but once you get in, it's not like renting, let's just say it's an apartment or whatever. Once you... When you're in an apartment, you might stay there for one or two years, and that's max. And so you're gonna, you know, absorb whatever the rental rate increase is. But fifty bucks or hundred dollar rental rate increase is kind of substantial for people uh, on a monthly basis. In self storage, your rental rate might be a hundred bucks. Well, if I raise it, your rent's five percent. That's only a five dollar rate increase. That really you can sneeze at that, you know, not really think about it. So the, the tenant base tends to be sticky. 
And when you're ready to move out, you know, then you're ready to move out and you know it. Otherwise, you kind of keep your stuff there because it's a pain in the butt to go rent a truck, get all your buddies to go help you load up the truck of all the stuff. And then we're going to put it at the one down the street that's charging you the same amount, you know? So it's kind of, there, there's a sticky tenant base there that are willing to accept those rental rate increases. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really attracts me to this asset is that specifically, but it's also the operating expenses, right? So when you think yeah. about it, you've really just got steel bars and some way to uh, shut the door and then some kind of automatic locking systems, et cetera. Are you, what, what are we looking at from a normal operating expense standpoint? Yeah. So in any before getting into the weeds on that stuff, typically an expense, good expense ratio for self-storage facility is around 35%. So for every dollar that comes in, roughly 35 cents goes to expenses, then remaining 65 cents goes to the NOI. That's typical. Now, if you go to a smaller facility, that expense ratio might go up. So maybe it's 40 or 45%. If you're at a larger facility, that expense ratio can go smaller, uh, sub 30%. We, we've seen it that way before. So it really just depends on a couple of things. One is your taxes. And then the second is if you have any payroll or on-site management. Those are the two largest expenses pretty much in any type of business really is your taxes and your payroll, but especially in self-storage. So yeah, so it's, we can obviously get more nuanced than that, but I think that's a good high level look at it. Yeah. And just for the listeners out there to compare that to a multifamily, usually you're running at about a 50% operating expense standpoint in multifamily. So that extra 15 points going to the bottom line is massive. You mentioned everything in the Southeast, right? North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, et cetera. Where are you looking? Because one of my ideas when I think self-storage is to own a big self-storage facility near a lake where people mm -hmm. pull their boats out and then they put them there in the winter and then they just pay to keep the thing for the summer, that keep the unit for the summer. But mm -hmm. I know that's probably a very ignorant way to look at it. Are there any particular demographics or any particular areas where you specifically look for self-storage? Sure. So for us, every let me say this, that facility in a rural market can work just as well as a facility at Maine and Maine in downtown Charlotte or whatever. So there's no downside as long as you can understand that market and know that you can rent units and how to go about doing that. There are rural deals that work really well. And there are people who coach and teach and all that kind of stuff to buy those kinds of deals because they aren't being targeted like by the larger groups like us and others, right? Makes a ton of sense. So what you let's just use that example you gave where hey my thought is go buy it near a lake where people have boats and cetera and they need the space and they keep it and they they leave it there and whatnot that works completely fine that's a great strategy as long as you know the people who are visiting the lake and the you know the housing around the lake can actually afford your units right that's the key right can they afford my units and what's the competition look like that would be a completely great strategy i know a guy who actually did that where we owned a facility in charlotte for example our parking is through the roof. Like we're asking people to move out because we're going to build a building there. And they're actually mad because they park their RVs and their boats in there and they have nowhere else to go. And for the price that we have, obviously now we've just raised rates 9%. So, cause they don't have anywhere else to go either. But still the point is, is like, that's a great strategy. So you might find a piece of property that only has, let's call it 10,000 square feet of units it's got land in the back, another two acres or something like that. You could build more units or you could turn that into a big parking lot, which probably at this point in time would be a great idea because metal is so expensive. But you, know, you could do that and cash flow it very nicely. 
So that's a great strategy. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But for us, what we're looking for, I mentioned earlier on, is growing cities and suburbs, North, South Carolina, et cetera. We want to buy deals that are $10 million or more in those growing markets. And that's because of scale, economies of scale, right? So if we buy a larger facility, we can scale quickly in the market that we want to be in. Also, your debt terms are more favorable at that size. So when you get to a loan size, let's call it $10 million and up, you have now access to debt funds and other uh, sources of capital that have a really cheap cost of capital, I guess you could say, and favorable terms, non-recourse debt, et cetera. So that's why we want to go larger and bigger. Plus, we're also, depending on when this comes out right now, when this episode comes out, uh, we might already be in the midst of deploying capital. But right now, as of today, we're putting together our docs for a $50 million storage fund, self-storage fund. And so we need to obviously go after larger deals. That's what we want to do, the class A type stuff built in the last maybe 10 to 15 years or five years or so, um, lease up deals are as well. So we'll look at anything in good growing markets in those states that I mentioned earlier on larger deals to get scale and to get favorable debt terms. But that's not everybody. And that doesn't have to be everybody. And it shouldn't be everybody, right? So if somebody wants to find a deal that and get an SBA loan and do exactly what you just said, that's a completely legit, awesome plan, I think. Yeah. And um, when you say $10 million, there are probably a lot of people out there that are like, wait a minute, I can't afford $10 million. But to your point, you can get a part of these funds or these syndications where you only have a limited amount of capital in there. And the fund is making all the decisions, doing the heavy lifting on the acquisitions, the management portion of it. And you're just sitting back passively and getting a great return. Your YouTube channel is one of the best I've seen on giving like detailed knowledge on due diligence and looking at things, et cetera. I know a couple of nuggets I pulled out were if you're going in and the broker is always going to say that you can build new self-storage units on there, but they might not be able to accommodate it from a zoning perspective. You always want to go after it rains because you want to make sure that there's no flooding and things like that. Are there any other kind of tips that you could give us there if we're looking at self-storage units and want to go out and buy a mom and pop for a smaller scale unit? Yeah, there's a lot, man. A lot to think about with that stuff. So one thing that comes to mind is the rent roll and just making sure that when they tell you, oh yeah, I'm all full, 100% full, that might be true, but you got to trust but verify. So please send me a list of the customers you have renting there. They might not even know what a rent roll is, but you just say, hey, I need a list of customers who are renting from you right now, names and phone numbers. I don't need much more beyond that. Names, phone numbers, and which unit they're in because I need to call all of them to verify. Now, this is when you're under contract, okay? So we're talking about you're in a contract, you're in due diligence. What do you need to do to get into the weeds and actually make sure this thing is making money? That's one thing you'd want to do. Obviously, you look at the tax return, the Schedule E to make sure that all the money is hitting. Now, you're going to see some discrepancies there are typically on a mom and pop, they're going to, they're not going to have all the income flow through uh, to pay taxes on, right? So some of them, some of them take cash and they won't always report that cash and that's okay. Uh, but as long as you can feel comfortable that people are actually warm bodies are in those units, what will happen is sometimes an owner and, and owners do this, they'll, they'll put locks on the units and it looks like they're rented, but they're not actually rented. I've heard stories of owners doing that and then looking, faking the the uh, income and expense reports to make it look like those units are rented, but they're actually not. So you want to just be able to verify that as much as you can. Now you can't go remove locks and look in and roll up doors or all that kind of stuff because it's technically the tenant's space, right? You can't do that. You have to ask the tenant to come down and take their lock off and show you. But all the due diligence that you can do would be to look at the rent roll, make sure it matches up what's there physically at the property. Look at the financials and make sure that the money is hitting and understand that, hey, if they're taking cash, it's probably not all hitting the bank account because they don't want to pay taxes on it. Other things to watch out for is uh, mom and pop sellers 
who don't want to use an attorney and claim that they always do handshake deals. Uh, I'm just going to tell you guys right now, now your listeners might have the utmost integrity, always might have, you know, the best intentions, but that's what contracts are there when things go wrong. And when something goes wrong, now we start thinking about, Hey, what do I need to do to protect myself? Right. And uh, that's, if there's nothing on paper and it's not written down and I haven't signed anything, well, Hey, too bad. So sad, Mr. Buyer. Right. So you've already spent all the money on due diligence and this and that, and you don't have anything written down. You don't have any solid contract. The seller doesn't have an attorney. Like those are the kind of the red flags. And I say that because we went through that on a deal. We actually put a deal under contract here in the Charlotte market. We lost a total of, let's say $6,000. Now that was all seller default. We were under contract. We could have sued him for something called specific performance, meaning to force him to sell the facility to us. But at that point, it just wasn't worth the hassle and the headache. And he kept saying through the process, oh, I don't want to use an attorney, this and that. We had him. We had an actual legit contract, but uh, he didn't have an attorney. He didn't have all this other stuff. And we said, you know what? This is not worth uh, the effort. So you got to watch out for that sometimes and just make sure that they're willing to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah. And if we've piqued your interest at all here on this show, then go check out Chris's YouTube channel because you have multiple, multiple hours of doing due diligence, underwriting, how you can find all that stuff out. I want to switch us to the last portion of the show here called the five toppings. The first uh, topping is what is your favorite book? Man, favorite book for business, I would say is the, uh, for life, I would say is the Bible. Uh, there's a lot in there that might surprise some of your listeners, but there's a lot of good information in there. And it's not just stories about snake talking snakes and people eating uh, fruit in the garden and all this kind of stuff, right? There's a lot of other information in that book that can help guide your life, especially in the book of Proverbs and life in business and in general. So I would recommend that. Uh, as far as real estate is concerned, man, that's a tough one. Uh, there's actually a textbook I really liked uh, from when I got went through school and I still have it. It's highlighted. It's, uh, it's over there. Commercial Real Estate Analysis and Investments. Commercial Real Estate Analysis and Investments. Really great book. A little technical, but great book. Yeah, I love it. You're the first one to say a textbook on the show. So you're you're an inner nerd. And <laughs> so I like I'm a it. nerd. <laughs> yeah. The second one is, what's something that you do every single day? Uh, I have, generally speaking, I have a routine where I get up, I have personal time, usually some exercise time, and then I jump into what it is I need to do for the business for the day. So in my actual files here on my computer, it's laid out that way. So number I have like number one, and then I have a file for that. Click on that. Number two is this, and I just follow them. The one, two, three, and four. By the time I get to four, that's everything regarding PassiveInvesting.com. Awesome. I want to learn more about that when we're off air here, by the way. <laughs> sure. Uh, the, the next thing is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. If you want to grow, they always say the gurus say, oh, who are your five friends? You know, that's what you're going to be like. And that's, that is the truth. And what I quoted there was actually from Proverbs. So if you want to become a real estate investor, live and breathe, right? Real estate investing and then surround yourself with those types of people. I'm not saying cut all your friends off who aren't doing that stuff. So, but, but I am saying surround yourself with people who are going where you want to go or who are already where you want to be and uh, you'll get there. Absolutely. And by listening to the show, people are already doing that because that's how I did it during the pandemic. That's how I've done it for multiple years now as I just surround myself when I'm working out in my ears is always a real estate podcast or an investing podcast. And those are the people I hang out with, I think. There it is. What's the thing you're most proud of in your life? My family. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, like, oh, your family. Uh, well, <laughs> I went through a lot of physical um, issues in my 20s with my intestines and I had a surgery and all this stuff. My wife stuck with me through the, all that. We had 
two kids while we're at uh, Chapel Hill, actually. So I had one when I went there. Um, uh, he was two years old, roughly. And then we had another one there at the school. Uh, we just had our third last year during the pandemic. And I just think that we've been through a lot as a family. Um, and uh, so I'm really proud of that, actually. I'm proud of my boys. They're actually great boys. Obviously, my babies. Uh, he's awesome. But the other two, they're nine and six, and they're fantastic. So I'm, I'm very proud uh, of what we put together, my wife and myself. So that's awesome, man. If you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? Um, that's a great question, man. You know, I would probably do it, sit down. I'm actually reading or just finished up Steve uh, Schwarzman's book, uh, yeah. What It Takes. Is it any um, good? You know what? It is. You have to kind of look, see past a little bit of the kind of the me, me stuff. Cause a lot of it, it it's an autobiography. So it's just going to be all about me and how great I am. So you kind of have to look through that to see what he actually went through to build Blackstone. And uh, he talks about that and how they were rejected, I think over a hundred times when they were yeah. trying to raise capital in the beginning. Um, so it's a great book. There's some ups and downs in it where some parts are better than others. Uh, but overall, just his tenacity and then the fact that he dreamt big. So another great book is by Gary Keller. He has a couple of them. The One Thing, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, which I really love, and a few others. Uh, but he talks in that book about having big goals, big vision, and then taking big action. Well, Steve Schwarzman says the kind of the same exact thing. He says, have a dream or a goal big enough with rewards big enough to warrant your time because it's as easy to do a small deal as it is a big deal. We we're talking about $10 million deals earlier. That, that's what we're looking for. Some people are like mind blown. Like I can't even do a $10 million deal. It is the same effort to do a $10 million deal as it is a $1 million deal. That's right. In some cases, it's more difficult to do the $1 million deal. The financing is more difficult. The seller is more difficult to work with. There's a lot of headaches dealing with that stuff. Whereas on the 10 million, it's institutional kind of. The reports are there. The debt is, the financing is there. The information is there. There's nothing really hidden because they don't want that reputation in the space. So it's just as easy as to do something big as it is to do something small. It's better to dream big. So I probably would sit down with Steve Schwarzman or maybe Gary Keller. Cause I think I, I really actually think he's a, a great mentor and, and teacher uh, as well. Yeah. I gave Steve Schwartzman's book to my father for Christmas last year and I might have to steal it from him and read it. Yeah, I, yeah. I've learned, the more I learned about him, Blackstone is massive. And, and yeah. I think it was, he had a hundred meetings. He didn't get anything. And his first investment was like a hundred million dollars. So yeah. what yeah. do you do with that kind of money? Uh, yeah. Would be crazy. His partner, it's funny because his partner, Pete uh, said, let's do a $50 million fund. They were actually trying to do leverage buyouts, which is yeah. what, this is exactly what we do in real estate. We buy a property, we fix it up and we flip it, right? Or sell yeah. it off. That's what they're trying to do with businesses. But it was a new concept back then called leverage buyouts. They'd never done one. So Pete was like, let's do a $50 million fund. We'll start small and go bigger. He said, no, we're going to do a billion dollar fund. Yeah. And so that's what they did. That's what they tried to go after. And they all, I think they did, a, I think they ended up raising 900 million or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so small. pretty close to it. Yeah. Yeah. In small, the 80s. Small little fun. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been wonderful. You've helped me gain a lot of insight into the self-storage market and hopefully our investors as well and our listeners. If people wanted to learn more about you, where could we point them? Uh, passiveinvesting.com uh, is our main website. If they want to join the Passive Investing Club uh, and learn more about our fund, please do so. Go to passiveinvesting.com. If you want to connect with us, like on our podcast or YouTube channel, you can check it out, Storage Investor Nation uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast uh, and also on YouTube as well. Now, if you look me up, you might be a little confused, like, Chris, why there's two channels and two podcasts. I had a podcast 
and a YouTube channel. I've slowed off of that because I've transitioned over to passive investing and the storage investor nation stuff that we're doing. And so that's why I need to put a pretty bow on it. Hopefully by the time this comes out and people are listening, I will put a little wrap up on the uh, podcast for everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. I hope we get a chance to have you back on the show to talk deeper because you are a wealth of knowledge on demographics, technology, and trends in this space. Awesome. Yeah, love to do it. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.